Welcome to I've Got One, a podcast for the stories that define us. I'm Jim O'Connell. And I'm Andy Sharavsky. And this is our eighth and final episode of season one. Thank you to anyone who's been listening all the way through. We really appreciate it. We are putting together season two already. We've got some big things planned. Big things planned, but we're not exactly sure when we'll be coming back with that. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll have more on this after the episode. But before we get too into season two... We have one more story for you. Yeah, and the storyteller is so amazing that we actually had her tell us three different stories, all from different parts of her life. Maggie Goodman. I I like to think that I'm smarter than I am. (laughs) I have a tendency to be very kind on the outside, but my nougaty center is like, please don't bother me. (laughs) And um, I, I don't like people... In my business, I think that comes from being the oldest of four. And I lived with those three people until I was about 15 years old in one bedroom. It's like, no, this is my corner of the world and you leave me alone. So so I have a natural like paranoia, stay out of my business kind of mode. I quietly and really enjoy like messing with people. Yeah. So there's that too. And where are you from originally? Uh, Hickman, Kentucky. Hickman, Kentucky. So there you go. <laughs> Okay, um, so as a little kid, before, I don't know, the age of 10 or 11, I was incredibly shy. Like, I just didn't really talk to people at all. Um, And I had, like, my one or two friends and everyone else I was just too grown up for. Like, I was just immediately when I was born, I was like a 40-year-old woman, like, oh, this is too much. When I was in first grade, um, I had my first crush on a boy. Um, and I don't know what it was about him, but I just really liked this kid and he was such a piece of shit. Now that I look back on it, he was just a terrible person. <laughs> this is a, you know, pattern in life, but whatever. So I, uh, was always trying to find very quiet ways to get his attention because that was not in my natural mode to be an attention seeker or to do anything that brought a, you know, the light on me. So there was one day that I noticed like he was like chasing down the slide with folks. So basically like, there was two slides, one really tall one, one really short one. And he was like getting someone to go on the other one and he would race them down on the other side. He got through racing with one person and I was like, well, I'll race down the slide too. Like, no big deal. So I, I get to the top of the slide. And I mean, the graceful gazelle that I am, you know, as a chunky six-year-old that shops at the, you know, JCPenney Plus store or whatever. So I get to the top. And at that time, I'm going to date myself a little bit, um, those t-shirt ties on the side were a very big thing. And I think I had a big plastic one that was like yellow. It looked like a belt buckle that you would just shove the edge of a t-shirt in. And it just was the dumbest looking thing you could ever see. And so I get to the top of the slide, I look over at him, I'm like, I'm going to win his love. I'm too busy thinking all those things. And as I start to get like ready to go down, I notice the t-shirt tie has caught in the handle of the slide. Even my young self was like, well, I can't just like strip off my shirt going down the slide. So I turn to remove the t-shirt tie and just fall from the top of the slide, like, like a sack of flour, just thunk. And when I fell, um, I didn't realize it, but I broke my leg. I mean, I just couldn't get up. And I'm like, oh, this is ruining all of my plans. 
He will never love me now if I've broken my leg on a slide. And the next thing I really remember is not necessarily this boy, but I remember my teachers carrying me into the building. Like, uh, and it was just a terrible moment too because all of the other classes had lined up, all of the older classes. So like second, third, and fourth grade were literally lining the halls. Like I was some kind of like dignitary to parade. <laughs> it was very awkward. And I had two teachers having to carry me in. And the weird thing about that too is that I didn't think like, oh, I'm in pain and my ankle's hurting me. Or like, oh, this boy don't doesn't like me anymore. All I could think about was like, oh, Two teachers are having to carry me in. I bet if Jesse fell, only one teacher would be carrying her in. And it's so weird. At even six years old, I just thought, oh, you know, how is that the first thought in my mind? After I broke my leg, they created a rule that if you were third grade or under, you couldn't go on the tall slide. And it's just, it's still known as, to this day, the Maggie rule. As far as what other kids thought of me, I was really lucky that I went to a really small school in a small community, and uh, I'd known those kids probably, like, I, I can't recall a time that they weren't in my lives, basically. So I luckily didn't have too much of, like, environmental bullshit. Like, there wasn't a lot of bullying that happened to me because we knew who to talk to. Like, we knew their moms. But then also there was a certain kind of understanding, like, hey, this is your little family at Fulton County, like, don't mess with them, you know? I still had that, you know, nagging voice because we all do, and I had a tendency just to, like, overthink a lot of things, usually. Um, this is gonna sound really crazy, and I can't believe I'm sharing this with you guys, but there's something, uh, have you ever heard of, like, the condition where people think of, like, numbers as certain colors, or, like, colors have smells? So I have that, but with numbers. So like when I was little, numbers had personalities to me. <laughs> so one and two were kind of the mama and papa bear. Three is the lovable idiot of the family kind of thing. Uh, four was kind of like the baby or like little sister in my mind. Five like was the outcast that always wanted six to love her, but she never got his love. <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling this. Six was like the hot shot, like jock in class or whatever. Seven was just the bitch, just an absolute bitch. Uh, eight and nine were like twins that like were goofy and just like always were pranking each other. And then 10 was more of like a deity kind of thing. Like he was just kind of always standing over, maybe like a great grandfather kind of role. I can't believe I'm telling you guys this. This makes me feel so weird to share this. I have follow up questions. Okay, Did Zero have a personality? No, zero is a non-entity. <laughs> I blame some of it on like whatever genetically is happening to make me, you know, think that way. But also I blame some of it on the fact that I really love soap operas and Days of Our Lives as a child. Like, I feel like that all mixed into like this weird little hodgepodge mess of how I viewed the world. So I at least when I thought about that for myself, I always did it. Like when I was adding numbers, I thought about like those weird personalities and stuff. But then I knew somewhere in my heart that this was weird so it's like you know that complicated feeling of like oh I bet nobody else does this so it's always just like a jumbled up mess of like whether I felt good about it that day whether it was just a day of just like stop doing this you're an idiot you know so there's a lot of self-criticism as a kid too I mean I'm red-faced right now because I just feel so embarrassed I don't I'm like how the hell did I tumble into this so <laughs>
<laughs> Why do you feel embarrassed? I don't know. I still think it's just such a strange thing. It's like if that's my deepest, darkest secret that I'm okay as a human, like I haven't murdered anyone. <laughs> like if my deepest, darkest secret is that I think number seven's a bitch, then I'm okay. But I still think on some level, I guess that's still that like we all have that six year old inside of us, like, oh, this is a secret shame. <laughs> this is terrible. Do you still have that or utilize it today? Sometimes I will, like, I'll just, especially with Seven, y'all. Seven is still a bitch. So, uh, this was a few years later after the, the slide incident, and I think I was in maybe fifth grade? So the preface for this, the, the context for it, is that um, there was a man named Mo Teeters that murdered a woman in the neighborhood I grew up in in my small town. He murdered her and then like he like disposed of her body by like cutting her up and burning her. So uh, on th- that all happened and Mo Teeters was on the limb. Oh, Mo Teeters, Mo Teeters. That was, everybody was talking about Mo Teeters. And it was very much so uh, known by younger kids, too. Like, it's just something that kind of seeps into community, especially since he was on the limb, that element of fear, too. Um, so we were talking about it one day. We, I think it was in gym class, and we'd gone into the, um, like, the shower changing area. And, and, like, all the girls were, like, you know, talking about, like, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. Like, he's still out there. You know, just all of those weird, like you know, replaying it in your minds kind of thing. And um, I took it upon myself at that moment of like, I don't think that I made a calculated choice, but I just couldn't help myself. And at that point, I looked at them and was like, well, guys, um, I didn't want to say it, but uh, Mo Teeter slept in our barn last night. And the room just stopped. And at that point, I shouldn't have taken great joy in it, but I did. And I kept talking. I was like, yeah, we found his hat and a blanket. And like, I just gave this elaborate, you know, setting the stage, like he'd slept in the barn. We don't have anything in there. We used to have goats. We don't have anything in there now. He just slept in it. And it's just, just nothing there. But we walked in because we heard something and there was his hat and there was his blanket. He was probably just nearby, you know, like I just kept talking and like everybody at that point was just like, holy shit, this girl is for real about this killer sleeping in her barn. Everybody was talking about the fact that Mo Teeters had slept in Maggie's barn. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we just barely survived. You know, like, I really started capitalizing on it. I had two very young brothers, and I think one was a baby, and it was like, yeah, thank goodness they didn't come in the house. Like, it just kept getting worse and worse. Everybody went home that night. And what I thought would be just a story for, like, the fifth grade class at Fulton County Elementary Middle School became the story for the you know a whole community and so I got home that night and my aunt had gotten a call from our local sheriff looking for my dad and my uncle my aunt having heard the story about Mo Teeters in our barn just knew like oh my gosh they found Mo Teeters and my husband and my brother-in-law have to be like witnesses for this and so she called my mom And I just still remember really vividly, like I was just kind of in the dining room doing my homework and I heard the phone ring and in my gut, I knew I'm like, oh, this is it. (laughs) I'm going to get called out on everything I did today. And my mom answered the phone. She goes, "Mm mm-hmm. And there's just like a whole three minutes of, 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was so convincing that like, if you didn't know my mom, you'd think, well, this is just like a salesman or something. But in my heart, I knew those mm-hmms were the mm-hms of a very pissed off woman. She's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She hangs up the phone and she looks at me, she's like, Maggie Ellen? And I always was called by my double name uh, in the South, but it was a little bit more angry, angrier with mom said at that time. She's like, did you tell your cousin and all your friends? And all of the sixth grade that Mo Teeter slept in our barn last night. And of course, this was like, you know, somewhere in the 90s. I don't really remember where, but not was still a big deal. Uh, it's like a joke. And I was like, yeah, but you know, I said it. And I was like, not. And it was the dumbest like defense I'd ever given to anything I'd ever said. And it didn't fly. And I got in a lot of trouble. I never heard from my dad about it, but I'm sure he was just too embarrassed to even me about it. Do you have any more info on Mo Teeters and what happened with that? Yes. When he got to prison because of the notoriety of what had happened and the gruesome, you know, act that he committed, like he was killed in prison by people. Uh, apparently, like there's a really awful story about like, like there's suspicion that like he was um, like molested as a kid. Like, like there's a horrible backstory as to why he became this monster, you know, so this might really just undercut my whole funny little antidote. Just this story about this man going to prison and being killed, but it is what it is. It's got to live in the nature of what's around it. What do you think it was in that moment after gym class that like made you like say like, well, I got to do this? It was after gym class, not my moment to shine. Like you throw on that jock jams tape and try to get me to do a layup. It's not pretty, <laughs> just not. So I think that probably coming out of a vacuum and also because I was a really a really good student and I did normally shine in a normal classroom setting when I was in gym class, that was not a time to shine. So I think that probably it wasn't like damage control, but on some level it was like me trying to regain a little bit of power there, which that's its own little like case study, right? <laughs> but small towns, and I think particularly small towns and places that are rather religious. Um, it's taboo, right, to really dwell on that too much. And most certainly, like, evil things, like, you you really are supposed to kind of cast that out. Um, so I think that, you know, for people that most certainly didn't have, like, there were no direct TV satellites. Like, there, there was not cable. Uh, you were relying on, like, three channels, and, and maybe there's a murder mystery or two in there. Like, that wasn't much entertainment. So when this happened, it was the most exciting thing that had happened in our town in a long time. Um, so I think that people were fascinated by that. I think, too, because um, it's a community of really tough people. Like, this corner of the world... Um, is near the Mississippi River and basically it's just like a big wetland that we've somehow been able to make into a town and farmland so there's an element of like people shouldn't have survived there but the people that did are hardy and crazy <laughs> so it's like you add that in with like a need for entertainment and like the kind of fear factor element of like it could have happened to any of us and this is what I would have done if it happened to me <laughs> you know it's like you know you can hear like the shotgun click in the background almost and so, like, my little story was a part of that in its own way. Um, it would have been an interesting time for our city to have a time capsule. That was, like, a very defining moment for me of, like, bad things happen. And then, in particular, bad things happen to women, you know? And it's, like, you don't ever hear stories about 
men being cut up and burned alive. No, no, sir. You do not. Like it just, it's, that's the bullshit world that I was getting into. And I think that that happening, you know, right before my teenage years was like something that was like, oh, that was one of those first definitive moments of like, life will be a little different for me as a woman in the world. Um, you know, that's the really sad part of it. I think, uh, the part that I took away from it, that's the funny part is that, um, the microcosm of a small town has a way of just like telling stories and like, you know, the the entertainment you provide for one another is just as important as like the support you provide for each other and like the literal meals that you provide for each other. I think that there's always going to be a fascination for me about how stories live and breathe in communities where everybody knows your stories, right? Like the, the new thing that comes along is going to be adapted and all of a sudden be ingrained in the thread of everybody else's stories too. is a real it was a a real life changing moment as an adult actually so it moves out of childhood but I most certainly felt like a child when it was all happening just watching my family deal with like the sadness of it um when um my brother and sister-in-law got pregnant for the second time they um she got very sick with preeclampsia people don't really talk about that but it affects a lot of women and it's very very dangerous if undiagnosed and um at some point early, too early in the pregnancy, um, she started having seizures and those main symptoms of going into full toxemia. And um, basically that's where the woman's body is kind of like attacking itself because they see the baby as like some kind of like foreign object almost. Um, I don't know all the particulars, so there might be more nuanced explanation of that. But um, she started having seizures and it was very obvious that they had to deliver uh, my nephew in order to save her. And it was just... It was heartbreaking because the thought of like, obviously, this baby's coming too early. And then um, heartbreaking to think like, oh my gosh, my sister-in-law, like she, this is really scary for us, for her, we could lose her. And there she's got a little baby at home and my brother, you know, they've loved each other since they were little kids. And it just all seemed vastly, vastly unfair. And um, so she she ended up having to deliver um, my nephew Dylan really, really young. And um, I can't think, I think that he was like, maybe 24 or 25 weeks like just at the level of like oh technology is enabling him to be here but is this the right thing for him to be here and he wasn't here for very long he passed away I think two to three weeks after he was born and it was just gut-wrenching I mean it it, yeah we dealt with sadness in my family but the natural kind of sadness like a grandparent dying or a neighbor passing away like that made sense you know right like we're all conditioned to kind of deal with that Um, but you know, the idea of like mourning a child that I never saw, like the complicated, like emotion of that, like having never held him or seen him, like that was just gut wrenching. And, um, to see my brother who was a very young, they were both very young parents. And I think they were probably like 21 or 22 when this happened. And so to see them at such a young age deal with a heartache that like, one, I didn't understand, and two, I could not fix. I was the older sister, and like, there was some element of always being able to fix things for them on some level that was important to me. And you know, it was foolish. Nobody can fix things like any, you know, any sadness really. 
But um, at that moment, I just was so, the, the ability to fix anything was just so empty. Um, and the fact that it was just, you know, so hard to mourn a situation like that. So we did have like a graveside service for him um, in a little small cemetery that uh, my sister-in-law's family has. And it was a beautiful day. And like, you know, luckily there was nothing to add to our sadness that day. I mean, it was, we were sad enough, but like the day was beautiful. Um, we got there and we, there was a little bit of a delay. And so we were just standing there and the graveyard was kind of up on a hill. And there was that feeling of like, oh, just that walk up that hill feels daunting. Like just the walk to get there and most certainly getting there and seeing a small coffin like that. I think was what probably was going to wreck me the most. Like all those feelings I kind of boxed up in order to just get through the day, make sure everybody was fed, like, like doing some of the legwork so that my parents didn't have to do it. And my brother and sister-in-law most certainly didn't have to like, that was where I was supposed to be in that moment. But I think I'd boxed up so many of the feelings I needed to process that it wasn't until the day of the funeral that it's like, Oh shit, you're going to have to deal with this, you know? Um, so I remember getting there and at first it was just our immediate family and, cousins and you know everyone that would normally gather for like family gatherings and Easter and stuff um and it was you know we were all just kind of silent and that's not normal for us you know we're all very talkative we come from that scotch-irish world just like we're always retelling and you know discovering new stories to share with each other and so for us to all be sitting there silent like spoke to like just the sadness of it so we were getting ready to go up and I remember, sorry, I remember my brother, um, the, the dad of Dylan, um, he said, well, y'all, let's do this. And just the resignation and the sadness in his voice just wrecked me, and it still does, obviously. Um, so we started to walk up the hill, and like I could feel myself like counting my breaths, like, I had to have some way to kind of check in um, because there was that overwhelming sense of like, I've got to be tougher than this because the people that really need to be sad today are my brother and sister and my parents, you know, I can be sad too, but like, I just need to be a little more stoic than this. Um, so I was like counting my breaths and I could feel myself like kind of counting down as we're walking up the hill and I'm with my sister, um, Hannah, who's, we're the two older ones. And, um, we get up there and one, we see like a crowd full of town people, like friends that we just wouldn't expect to show up at a graveside service for a baby they didn't know. And so like that was an added, you know, rush of emotion. Like, you know, there was my roommate, uh, Kyle, who took his took a day off of work to come to this funeral. And like we talked about it. You knew how sad it was for our family. But but to see not only my brother and sister-in-law's friends there, but to see my friends there, like it really just honed in like, oh God, what a good community of people I have, you know? Um, so that was a rush of emotion. And so I just, I was almost to the point of like, I'm gonna hyperventilate, I'm going to like pass out. I'm so overwhelmed by this feeling. And we get up there and we all line up and we look out and I'm heartbroken and my sister's there and we're holding hands and all of a sudden we look at that little coffin when I've been really fearing, you know, seeing. And the way they had put it in, like there was a box that they had put it in to keep it protected. I looked at Hannah and I just said, oh my God, it's a beer cooler. 
box looked like a beer cooler. So it was like those white styrofoam coolers, you know, that you just would throw beer in in the back of a truck. And we all get up there and, you know, we all are from that same genetic pool. And we all are morbid enough that we'd find this hilarious if it weren't our baby. <laughs> you know, But it was just one of those things that like we started, there was a small recognition, maybe not a laugh, but it was a small recognition on some level like, thank God for this moment. Like, right. It, and, and just the notion that like it could have been there or it could have been us just walking up on a picnic, you know, just the absurdity of it, I think was what made it really so beautiful. And it's one of those things that, you know, I am a person of faith, but, um, my flavor is a little different than most, but I do think that in that moment kind of encapsulated like how I feel about my faith. Like there's going to be real bullshit that you have to deal with and real sadness, but you will have moments that it will slap you in the face with either absurdity or humor or love that makes you able to breathe again. And it just was so stupid and wonderful and heartbreaking all at once. It's the most complicated afternoon of my life. But to be able to look at my sister in that moment and we both were like nodding like beer cooler. <laughs> and and then the recognition too, everybody loves being in a situation where you can't like say immediately what you're feeling you know every single person is feeling it when we went home the relief and like all of us sitting there around the living room and at some point someone said so that that coffin protector and everyone's like beer cooler <laughs> you know like we all knew on some level like that's what every single and so like that collective giggle and you know the peace that was felt after that um I think that was one of the most beautiful and weirdest afternoons in my life But then after that, um, we went through a very difficult season as a family. Um, it was the next to last year of my teaching career there. It was right before I moved to Chicago. And um, I felt like I just needed to stay, one, because all of that happened. But then I think four months later, my grandmother was diagnosed with a brain tumor and a cancer that was rather quick moving. And she was the heartbeat of our family. Like it just, it wrecked us. Um, and so when I think about like sad seasons or when I go through difficult things here, it's like, no, this isn't anything. Like I, I'm, I'm hardy enough and like tempered still. Like I, I have been tested and if I can make it through that season, I can make it through most seasons, you know, or at least I hope I don't get thrown anything worse than that. Um, so it was a weird year and a half, I feel like, of like us as a family figuring out where we were. What I did take away from it is that one, again, like we said, like seeing the community there that day when my when we had the funeral, that spoke to like the life that my parents had built, the life that I had built, that people would show up. I come from good stock. I've got good people in my corner. It really was like, oh, no matter how far I am, I can always count on them.
Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Maggie Goodman for sharing all of her stories with us. As we said at the top of the show, we are preparing for season two of I've Got One. We're not quite sure when that will be released, but we will keep you posted. Make sure that you follow us on Facebook. And we're also in the process of putting together a website at I've Got One.org. And as always, I've Got One is supported by nobody financially, but hopefully all of you emotionally.